Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Good morning. Uh, I love that song. It is so good to sing about that day when we will feast in the house of Zion. Our hearts will be restored. We'll be talking about the great things that he has done in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, it is a privilege to be here this morning. I appreciate this privilege of being in the pulpit. I have to admit, I would appreciate it more and enjoy it more if these uh, seats could be filled. Uh, but I am glad to have the opportunity uh, to preach this morning. And when Spencer and I were talking about my time in the pulpit today, a few weeks ago, we, we talked about taking a few minutes and looking back a little bit at 2020. And we might all be tired of talking about 2020, uh, but we thought it'd be good to, to take a look back over the past year or so and talk not so much about the events of 2020, but to talk about our response to 2020. And by that, I mean literally our response as in as a church, as believers, and how we responded to the trials that the past year have brought. I, I love this church. This church is uh, my home for my family. Uh, my kids are being raised in this church. You folks have loved me well, loved my family well, and uh, have been good and kind to me. And as an elder in this church and one who cares about our witness in the world and our ability to continue to, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, I wanted to start off this morning with a little bit of a, maybe a pastoral perspective on our response to, to life in 2020. And as we do that, there's some reasons to be very glad, very thankful for this body. I would echo what Spencer said earlier about the church board's thanksgiving for this congregation. Uh, there's so much to give thanks for. There's some real successes or what we could say even better, evidences of grace, evidences of God's grace in our congregation. And I wanna list a few of those for you this morning. First of all, I have seen love put on display. I have seen the love of Christ just tangibly put on display in this body. Uh, people have encouraged me. I know people have encouraged one another. Uh, in our ABF, we, we had a few calls to, uh, to provide meals, to provide funds for folks. And I just saw this overwhelming response, a desire for the body of Christ to love one another. Uh, attendance, of course, has been affected by COVID, and yet giving is up. The Deacons Fund, which provides for people who are needy, is, has never been healthier. And there's just a cause for thanksgiving, for the love being de demonstrated here at Racine Bible Church. I've also seen a renewed commitment to fellowship. We, you never know what you have until it's taken away, right? And our, our ability to be together was taken away for a while last spring. Our, our ability to gather as ABFs and fellowship groups was, was uh, not there for about six months last year. And as we've come back together, I've just seen a renewed commitment, a renewed desire for people to be together. I've talked to some folks who would say they're, they're self-professed loners, and they are even saying, yes, I recognize, I need people, I need fellowship, I need accountability. And so 
we have seen a renewed commitment to fellowship. Uh, A third success, if you will, a third evidence of grace I've seen in this congregation is spiritual growth. Um, Nothing reveals our hearts as well as trials do, right? Nothing reveals what's in our hearts like trials. Nothing reveals the idols of our hearts like those idols being taken away. And some of us who would have said we're trusting in God have, have realized that we maybe haven't been trusting in the Lord as, as well as we thought we were. And when some of our lives, when our lives have been ruffled, when, when things have been rocked, um, some I have seen in this congregation have recognized that they need to grow in their trust in the Lord. They need to put away some of the futility of the world. And some have laid aside those things in order to pursue Christ. I talked to one man in the congregation recently who told me that he deleted his Facebook account, he deleted deleted his Twitter account, he got rid of it all because they weren't doing him any good. They weren't good for his soul. And he'd rather be a disconnected Christian than to be one who was caught up in all the uh, events of the world and what that was doing to him. And that's, that's spiritual growth. Uh, I've seen fellowship restored. I've seen relationships repaired. There are people who have come to Christ. The work of God continues. And I could go on. The, the list of successes could be longer, but there are a few for, for you. And let, let me mention a few ways uh, that I think we have failed or uh, ways that we need to grow. Some areas perhaps for repentance. Um, I have seen fear in believers. There, there have been plenty of reasons to fear in the past 12 months. Fear of a virus, the fear of sickness, the fear of death. And yet the Bible says that Jesus came to take away the fear of death. And so we should not be living in fear. I think the most frequent command in scripture is do not be afraid. But it's not just the fear of COVID that has been a problem. I think even a bigger problem is the the fear of losing control, the fear of the future, the fear of losing freedoms, the fear of where things are going in our society. And I've probably seen more of that fear even than the fear of a virus. I don't think there's ever been a time in history that I'm aware of when conspiracy theories have flourished like they're flourishing right now. And conspiracy theories require fear to flourish. That's the oxygen of conspiracy theory is fear. And as Christians, we ought to be the least susceptible to all of the fear-mongering of our world because we worship and we follow a sovereign God who rules over all. We have no reason to fear. Uh, Another area where I think we need to grow is in the area of anger. I I feel like I've seen more anger in believers maybe in the past year than I had, I'd say maybe in the past 20 years combined. And uh, I know it can be tempting to say, well, it's it's a righteous anger. And I say, no, I don't think it is. I don't think it is a righteous anger. I think A lot of it is a manifestation of pride, a lack of trust in God, and it robs us of our joy. 
It was Jesus who said, love your enemies, do good to those who mistreat you. And I think sometimes our response to the world around us doesn't live up to that standard. And honestly, much of what is considered Christian out there in the world is a, is a big part of the problem. I, don't, I rarely listen to the radio, but a couple of weeks ago, I turned on a Christian radio station while I was driving and uh, l- listened to a little bit of a, it was a talk show. And they were discussing like communist connections to the FBI or something like that. And uh, the host was angry. The person that he was talking to was angry. The people calling in were angry. And I had to turn it off before I got angry. The Bible says that what God is interested in producing in us is love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. And for some, I think our response to 2020 has been less love, less joy, very little peace. This is an area we need to grow. Uh, A third and final uh, area where I think we have struggled is in misplaced priorities. I think for some of us, there's been a, a bit of a loss of focus. Jesus told us to make disciples. Jesus didn't tell us to change the world. We're not called to scream insults at the world. We're not called to sort out all the problems in the world or complain about all the problems in the world. We're called to make disciples. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And our priorities as believers are not the priorities of the world. They're not the priorities of the people on the right or the people on the left. The priorities of believers are not the priorities of any secular organization. Our hope is not in a movement. It's not in a political party. It's not in a platform. It's not on any person on this earth. Our hope is in Christ. And while we're here on earth... We want to be about his business, which is the business of making disciples, pursuing holiness, advancing the cause of Christ. I read an article this week, and a couple of lines in that article really stood out to me. The the author was saying that as Christians, we believe that this world is not all there is, that history is moving toward a goal, toward an end. And that end should change how we think about things. I just want to read you one line uh, from this article. And I quote, Properly speaking, an eschatological worldview should raise our eyes above the political horizon and draw us away from the myopia of the moment. I I like that phrase, the myopia of the moment. Uh, Looking just at what's right in front of us, what's just going around right around us, produces these issues in our lives and we need a view that looks above. The antidote to to fear and anger and misplaced priorities that have characterized some believers in 2020 is to let God, through his word, transform our vision. And we turn to his word to let him do that. My own Bible reading here in the month of January has been through First and Second Thessalonians, and it struck me as I was reading these books of how pertinent they are uh, to our times. When Paul thought about the church in Thessalonica, there was so much to commend them for. He loved that church. And yet they needed encouragement, and they needed exhortation, and I feel the same way about Racine Bible Church. 
So we're going to focus today on the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. For most of the first four chapters, Paul is recalling his time with them and restating his affection for them. This was a church full of faith and love, and they were standing fast in the Lord. And Paul wrote this letter to commend them and to exhort them to continue to walk in faith and holiness and love. But there was something that was upsetting the church in Thessalonica. They had questions about the return of Christ. Apparently, the delay in Christ's return was starting to cause some of them to go sideways. The return of Christ, instead of being a cause for joy and hope and obedience, it was a source of confusion for them. And so at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, Paul turns his attention to eschatology, to the return of Christ. Not to give them a bunch of details, not to cause them to start looking for signs or start speculating. In Scripture, the point of teaching about the return of Christ is always a push to live a certain way. The point isn't fascination or fear. The point is obedience. And so my goal this morning is to open up to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and examine how what we need right now in our day is a robust view of the end, a view of living in light of eternity. The antidote, I think, to angry Christianity is to remind ourselves of the brevity of this life and the soon return of the Lord, and he will sort it all out. The antidote to fearful Christianity is have our eyes fixed above where Christ is and to trust him with our lives and with our deaths. The antidote to misplaced priorities is to live as those who are expectantly waiting for Christ to return. And so I have four questions for us that come out of 1 Thessalonians 5 and are answered in 1 Thessalonians 5. And so let's walk through this text together. Our first question is, what does the return of Christ mean for unbelievers? What does it mean for unbelievers? First three verses here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul describes the return of Christ for the unbeliever. It's like a thief in the night. What does that mean? Well, it means at least three things. It's unexpected, it's unwelcome, and it's dangerous. Unexpected. No one knows when a thief will show up, right? That's the point. He comes when no one is looking. And that's how it'll be for the world when Christ returns. It's not that it'll be unexpected because Christ hasn't told us he's coming. It's because the world hasn't believed him or the world hasn't cared. As a matter of fact, As Paul says, they'll be saying peace and security. There'll be a a false confidence going on in the unbelieving world. And so they won't be prepared for Jesus' return. It's unexpected. It's also unwelcome. Paul uses the imagery of a thief, not because Jesus will come and take what doesn't belong to him, but because he'll be unwanted. No one wants to be robbed of their stuff. Someone showing up 
to take your treasure is a threat. And that leads to the third adjective, dangerous. Jesus' coming will result in harm for those who aren't expecting him. Look at the terms that that Paul uses there in verse 3. Sudden destruction. At the end of the verse, they will not escape. Darkness, destruction, and death await those who are not ready to meet the Lord. And this is what the return of Christ means for unbelievers. Well, our second question, what does the return of Christ mean for believers? What does it mean for us who know Christ? Look at verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Paul says you are not of the darkness for that day to surprise you. The imagery of a, of a thief coming at the, in the night is the wrong imagery to think about when it comes to Christ's return for believers. We are not in the night. Jesus' coming isn't like a thief in the night because we're not living in the darkness. For Christians, Jesus' coming is like the arrival of an expected guest. We're, we're eagerly awaiting him. If any of you spend any time around small children, uh, who are waiting for someone to show up. I, I have a six-year-old son, and when he knows grandma and grandpa are coming or a friend is coming, we could tell him they're coming at three o'clock, but nine in the morning, he's looking out the window. He's asking. He's waiting, right? And that's how we are. We, for the return of Christ for believers, we, we are eagerly waiting. We're leaning in. We yearn, we hope. The Bible says that we are not of this world. We are strangers and pilgrims. We are strangers in a strange land. This world is not our home. We long for our true home. Paul doesn't say here, you need to figure out a way to stop the darkness. He says, you are not in darkness. This world was not meant to make us comfortable because the world is dark and we're not of the darkness. We are children of the day, and so when Jesus appears, it won't be as a thief in the night. It will be as the arrival of our greatest friend and greatest king. When he comes, it will be to rescue his people, to reward his people, to bless us and take us home. So then, our third question out of our text in 1 Thessalonians 5 How then should we live? How then should we live? If it's true that Christ's return for the unbeliever is unpleasant and unwelcome, but his return for us is welcome and expected, then how how should we respond? How do we live? Verse six. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Paul says, keep awake and be sober. And he's using these phrases metaphorically. Of course, we're not to be drunk. 
That's literally true, but that's not Paul's point here. Paul's using sleep and drunkenness as figures of speech. People do wicked things at night. Darkness has always been a cover for doing evil. And the world is described as being of the night and in the darkness. But since we belong to the day, let's live as people of the day, people of the light. Let's live like there is a God in heaven. Let's live like he has created us and redeemed us for himself. Let's live as though we don't belong to the world because we don't belong to the world. The world is busy fighting over every issue of the day. The world has occupied itself with the here and now and jockeying for position and power. And that's what those do who are drunk, who are asleep. They're intoxicated with this life. And they're asleep to the reality of eternity. I really don't think the world needs one more Christian screaming our opinions into the fray. The call to Christ is a call to war against not the world, but the God of this world. And the way to do damage against our enemy is to make disciples. The mission of the church isn't to change this world's system. It's to make disciples. Have you ever heard that uh, phrase or that saying, he is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good? I don't know if you've ever heard that saying. Paul would say, I think he's too earthly minded to be of any heavenly or earthly good. We belong to the day. And so our response is to live as people of the day in faith and hope and love. Do you see that there in verse eight? Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, faith, hope, and love. A number of times in the New Testament, Paul puts these three virtues together, faith, hope, and love. So because Christ is returning, we live by faith. We trust in God. Now, that's a cliche, I know. We'd all, we all talk about trusting in God. But do you trust that God is sovereign, that he's working all things out for good, that he knows what he is doing? When people see your reaction to COVID, to elections, to the problems of this world, do they see an active, robust, faith-filled, joyful trust in God? Because Jesus is coming back, we live by love. You know, nothing is more countercultural than loving your enemies, responding to hate and mistreatment and rejection with forgiveness and mercy and love. And we have as our example, the Lord Jesus himself. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Because Christ is returning, we live in faith, we live in love, we live in hope. We have a hope that isn't dependent on our circumstances. We have a hope that is more than wishful thinking. We have real hope based on truth, found in Christ. And so Paul says, encourage one another and build one another up. We need each other to live out these lives of faith and hope and love. Commend one another when you see faith and love and hope in each other. Notice what Paul says right at the end of verse 11. Just as you are doing. And I would heartily agree with that. I see this in our church. I see this in so many of you. 
faith and hope and love. And I would exhort you to continue in it and excel in it. And that brings us to our last question this morning. Our last question, what does this look like in practice? What does this look like practically? What does it look like to live in light of the return of Christ in practice? What should we do? If I'm to keep my eyes on Christ and not get sidetracked into all the controversies of the world, if I'm going to live out a life of faith and hope and love, what do I do? Or better yet, if my eyes are fixed on Christ, what will that look like? What will my life look like? And the text tells us. Paul just got done telling the Thessalonians to live in light of the return of Christ, to live soberly, to live as people of the day. So anything he tells them now needs to be read in that light. And Paul finishes off the book of 1 Thessalonians with about a dozen imperatives that are the practical application of what he's been teaching. This is what it means to live as ones who are awake and sober and awaiting the return of Christ, who are living lives of faith and love and hope. Here it is. I've categorized them into into four groups here, four groups of commands that he gives to the Thessalonians. This is what it looks like. Number one, esteem church leaders. Esteem church leaders. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. The first command Paul gives has to do with how we respond to those in spiritual authority. In light of the return of Christ and the need to live lives of those who are in the light, we're to treat our spiritual leaders a certain way. Paul uses three verbs there in verse 12. If you look at it, he uses the word labor and then a verb are over you or manage and then admonish you. He's talking about church elders here who do the work of the ministry by leading the flock and teaching the flock. And believers are called to respect and esteem them. Paul actually makes up kind of a Greek word here in verse 13 that esteem them very highly. He uses sort of a a super superlative. I don't know how to translate it. Something like very, super, super very. Something like that. A super superlative. Esteem them. You know, it's our American tendency to rebel, right? We're, We're kind of a culture of rebels. That's how our nation started. And sometimes we can even think of our rebellion as a virtue. And too often that can carry over to how we respond to various authorities in our lives. And Paul says, respect and esteem your leaders. And notice what he connects respecting and esteeming the leaders to. Look at the end of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Let me tell you the greatest blessing that you can give to the leadership in a church, in this church, is to be of one mind, to be at peace with one another. There's no greater blessing than for the elders of a church to know that people in the church are loving and respecting one another and at peace with each other. Uh, Number two, our category of uh, practical application here from Paul is care for others. Care for others. Paul gives us some instructions on caring for people, doing relational ministry, both within and outside the body of Christ. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And the most important 
word in verse 14 is the word brothers. Because Paul uses that term when he's speaking about just the regular folks in the church. He's not talking to church leaders here. He's talking to every Christian. All believers are called to minister to one another in the body of Christ. If you would live as Christ would have you live, you will be in relationships within the church. And in those relationships, inevitably, you'll have opportunity to do what Paul says here in verse 14, admonish the idol. If we are in relationships with one another, there will be opportunities for us to be confronted gently by brothers and sisters in Christ and for us to do the same. Encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are those who are, who are discouraged or grieving, and we, we can offer encouragement and consolation. Come around uh, alongside those who are struggling, those who are suffering. It says help the weak. And people in the church might be weak in any number of ways, weak physically, weak spiritually, weak emotionally, weak financially, and we're called to help one another. And finally, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Paul's realistic, and he knows in the body of Christ, there's going to be plenty of opportunities to be patient with one another. That's what we're to in relationships inside the body of Christ. But Paul gives us a way to think about relationships outside the body of Christ as well. Look at verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Our world is all about retribution and revenge, right? It's all about winning, getting our own way. And yet Christ has a different way for his own. The world says you win by winning, and Christ says you win by losing. It was Christ who said the last shall be first. And all of this focus recently on our, our rights and getting our way, and it's really the mindset of the world. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And a few verses later, he writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So there are people who, who slam you for believing the way you do. The Bible says rejoice and bless them in return. So there are laws coming that make being a Christian more difficult. The Bible says rejoice. Have no fear. Don't be troubled, for you'll be blessed. That leads us to our third category. Rejoice and pray. Rejoice and pray. Look at verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Notice the adverbs in each one of these verses. It ties it all together. Always, verse 16. Without ceasing, verse 17. All circumstances, verse 18. So always, at all times, all circumstances, without stopping, the Christian approach to life is rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. Maybe the next time we're ready to, to sound off on Facebook about whatever is frustrating us, or the next time ready to send out that tweet, or 
make that comment? What if, what if we just stopped for a moment and rejoiced, prayed, and gave thanks to the Lord? I wonder if that would change some of what comes out of our mouths or comes off of our phones. And it's really significant. Paul says, this is God's will for you. The Bible doesn't tell you necessarily where to live, what job to take, when to retire, but he does tell you, you are to rejoice and pray and give thanks. And his final group here of commands for us, don't quench the spirit. Verses 19 to 22, don't quench the spirit. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Paul uses the word here, uh, quench. It's the word for extinguishing a fire, putting out a fire. And Paul is telling us that the spirit's work in our lives can be smothered, can be quenched. How? How might we quench the spirit? Well, Paul tells us in the next verse, by despising prophecy. In Paul's day, a prophet might stand up in the church and give a prophecy. And that prophecy would need to be tested uh, to make sure it was authentic. And you would test it against the words of Christ, against the words of the apostles, to make sure that it was true. Today, we have the more sure word. We have the scriptures, which have already been tested and found true. And so for us, despising prophecy means despising the word of God, despising what has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And we despise God's word when we ignore it, when we misinterpret it, when we apply it to someone else. We also quench the spirit, Paul says here, by participating in evil. And that's why he says in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. If you want to consider whether you're quenching the spirit, then ask yourself this question. What is the fruit of my life? Is it fear, anger, distraction by the world? Or is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? It's a very practical list Paul gives us here. There's nothing otherworldly about it. If we're going to live a life of faith and hope and love, if we're going to keep our eyes fixed on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a good list of what it would look like. You can think of these commands as a list of relationships. Verse 12 and 13, how we relate to church leaders. Verse 14, how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. Verse 15, how we relate to those outside the body of Christ. Verse 16, 17, 18, how we relate to God. Verse 19, how we relate to the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God. Living in light of the return of Christ affects all of those relationships. So if we're going to continue to to build on those evidences of grace from 2020, and improve in those areas that we need to improve. We need to keep the return of Christ in mind. Not for the purpose of speculation, not so we can obsess over prophecy in the news, but, but when you live with the end in mind, it changes your focus. If this world was all that we had, if this world system was gonna continue forever, then we should be fixated on it. But this world is gonna be remade 
This life is a vapor. Eternity is forever, and that changes our focus. If Christ is really coming back someday, if we're really going to see him, if there really is a resurrection, if there really is a day of judgment for the lost and a day of reward for those of us who belong to him, then that means something. It means that walking with him and worshiping him and loving him and pointing people to him is the most important work we can do. And Paul gave us all the motivation we need in verses 9 and 10. Look back up at verse 9 and 10. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Jesus died for you, so that you might live with him. And in the meantime, we live for him and in light of his return. And when we do that, what spills out of our life is faith and hope and love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your faithfulness to keep your word to us. You have promised us that this world and this life and the problems of today are not all there is, but that everything in history is moving toward an end, the return of Christ. We acknowledge, Father, that we are tempted to be myopic, to look only at the world right in front of us and to become fixated on the problems and struggles of this life. Father, lift our eyes. Set our hearts on the things that are above. Keep us sober and awake living in such a way that we have no reason for shame when Christ returns. Father, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the love and the faith and the goodness I have seen on display, for the generosity, for the prayers, for the sweet fellowship that happens here. These are evidences, Lord, of your grace at work. And I pray for us as a congregation. Father, I pray that we would put off anger and fear. I pray that we wouldn't become distracted by the world. I pray, Lord, that we would, by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God, demonstrate to the world that we have a hope that can't be destroyed, that our hope is in Christ. Father, we long for his return, and we long for the day when you make all things new. So until then, Father, Keep our eyes fixed on you. Keep us walking in faith and hope and love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.